0: This is Omo. This is Omo. This is Omo.
1: This is Omo. This is Omo.
0: This is Omo. This is Omo. This is Omo. Is this Yoko Omo?
2: This is Omo! This is Omo! Hello, everyone. Welcome to Omo, the romance and reality of violin making We are in part three of our instrument identification series, and joining me once again, Brandon Godman. Hi.
0: Hey, Rosie. How are you?
2: I feel like this has been a train coming at me with data and information. I hope that uh, this has been good for everybody who's been along on the ride with us. Uh, I feel like I've learned a ton. What about you?
0: I am, well, number one, I love trains. So anytime you can involve <laughs> train talk into violin talk, <laughs> um, totes down. Um, but yes, it, it's been a, um, we've absolutely had tons of information thrown at us. It's a heavy topic, isn't it? Um, this Especially lot. when we dive in deep, like we're doing. And I really, really appreciate all the viewpoints. And I'm really excited about this episode because this is the, This is the one where we pull it all together.
2: Yeah. So this one is called the path to attribution. The first two segments of the ID series dealt with how experts develop and train their eyes, the tools use an ID. And in this episode, we are going to walk through each expert's process and try to understand the path that they take each Towards making that final call, that final attribution, or not, or saying I don't know.
0: Yeah, it's going to be the game day play by play. Yeah, and we're going to have like the Harry Carries of the violin trade here.
2: Hey, <laughs> every single one of them.
0: <laughs> That's actually my Will Ferrell Harry Carry. So yeah. Um, and anyway, yeah. No, this is uh, the play by play. It's really interesting because when I started. Diving into the world of identification and, you know, looking at these things in wonder of like, how do you look at the violin and tell that it's made in Vienna? Like, how do you also tell me that this is not what it's labeled? You're pulling some magic tricks on me. And as you start diving in after years and years of watching people and their process, Um, It's fascinating and I remember going to the auctions the first time and just watching all of these dealers walk down the rows of violins and bows and just seeing and analyzing how each person picked up the instruments and bows, how long they spent with them, how they looked at them. I remember a mentor of mine, Tim Toft, holding a violin upside down in front of him about three feet away from his body kind of like a mirror, like he was peering into a mirror and looking at it upside down. And it was absolutely fascinating. Why was he doing that? You know, but then also watching people just spend 20 minutes on each instrument in an auction that has 300 lots, you know, Mm -hmm. and they're like, they've got their flashlights and, you know, magnifying glasses and black lights and all of this stuff. Um, Yeah, it's, it's pretty darn cool.
2: One thing I learned about the way I look at instruments that it wasn't fully clear to me before we did this series, I am always looking at it from how much money is this going to cost to fix it, to do this repair, to get this working correctly, and the signing off on its origination or the original hands that made it, that's not something that often occurs in my brain. Um, so it's stretching me to think a little bit differently about how I approach instruments, but yeah, I I just realized how hardwired I am towards the repair aspect.
0: Yeah. Under which conviction are we looking at instruments, right? Yeah. Um, as shop owners, we have to look at them sometimes from, I hate to say the C word, but capitalistic point of view of how, you know, how are we going to buy this? And then how are we going to get our money out of it?
2: Or on a kinder scale, how are we going to make a wise decision so we can pay our people?
0: Exactly. Perfectly <laughs> said. Um, you know, it, there's nothing better for me than to just walk into a room full of fiddles and have the ability to just look at them and not have to worry about buying stuff. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen with me because I have a real problem. Um <laughs> Yeah, I just like acquiring fiddles and bows. You so. should
2: see right now, Brandon is just sitting on a throne of fiddles. There's just, there's no room on either side of him. It's just fiddles everywhere.
0: My throne is a fiddle. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> so who do we have coming up in this episode?
0: Coming up in this episode, we have uh, the amazing Chris Rooning again. Yes. He is our, he's our, all-star player who is playing all innings with us today wow it just keeps coming back to baseball and I don't even know how baseball works Rosie I don't um
2: (laughs) there's something about a home run there's
0: (laughs) yeah hit something Um, speaking of home runs we have Claire Givens with us also yes again and then who's our third Rosie
2: that's going to be Stefan Hirsch and Where is he from? You know, you know this.
0: Hirsch is from Chicago. Chicago. He actually grew up in the Bay Area, but he runs Darton and Hirsch Fine Violins with his brother Julian and Michael Darton.
2: He is a hoot to talk to. He's great. Yeah. So we are ready to bring this to you. We're excited. Stay tuned. Fun, fun, fun stuff ahead.
1: The 2022 Violin Society of America Convention and Competition at Anaheim is happening November 13th to 19th. It's our first in person convention since 2019 and the first competition since 2018. All instruments and bows made since the 2018 competition are eligible for this year's competition. It's an event not to be missed. Omo will be there, and all of the other luthier friends you never get to see. So join us at the Hyatt Regency, Orange County, in Garden Grove, California. Registration is open now, and the early bird discount runs through Sunday, July 31st. You can find more details and registration information at www.vsaweb.org. Welcome back. We're
0: here now with Claire Givens coming to us from her shop in Minneapolis, Minnesota, Claire Givens Violins. Hi, Claire.
3: Hey, Brandon, Rosie, great to see you both.
0: It's nice to have you back. Um, So we want to talk to you today about uh, the process that we go through when trying to identify something. So would you mind just walking us through your process? How do you identify a violin bow um, when it walks into your shop?
3: Thank you. It's never the same from instrument to instrument. But, you know, when you first pick up a violin and look at it, it either strikes you as being interesting or it's not interesting. So if what's interesting and interesting is something that's beyond a a trade level instrument. And um, I think that's what we're most interested in, aren't we?
0: Yeah. So can you go just a little bit further? What interests you um, and maybe even just explain the trade level instruments?
3: Well, the trade-level instruments are a topic all unto themselves and a study all unto themselves and um, understanding where they came from and who made them. And um, I think that there's more and more study that's being done on them. But, um, you know, we have all of the trade catalogs here in our library. And, and of course, Roy Earhart's very useful. But um, I don't think there's that much more to say about them, is there? <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, probably not. Maybe let me rephrase. What is it that strikes you as being interesting about an instrument then to make you want to look further?
3: So I look for a quality of workmanship and quality of materials and the maker's intention. I look at that first. Is this an instrument of quality? Do I want to spend time with this? And that sounds pretty basic, I'm sure. But then, but then I go from there to the outline, to the F-holes, and um, F-holes fascinate me, and I'm particularly interested in wings. Now, I don't hear a lot of people talking about wings, but I, that's my personal aspect of uh, understanding instruments and when they were made as I look at the wings. And, of course, trying to figure out if it's a copy or not is, is part of that, uh, because earlier effoles can be seen on later instruments. And then I look at the integrity of the varnish on the surface of the wood, and is it original? Hmm. Because varnish can send you a long ways down the wrong path, if it's not. And then I start measuring, Um, I start trying to figure out the country of origin and the date of origin, and then I start pulling out books like crazy, and start checking my perceptions and finding those pictures that uh, relate to any of the ideas that I might have. And then I check my ideas. I get Andrew Dipper involved, and I get Doug Lay involved, and I check my ideas and see what they see. And um, it's not such a precise method, and um, but eventually I will end up somewhere, and I narrow it down.
2: Yeah. My next question was going to be about you had mentioned earlier about making this a collaborative process. And then you just now talked about bringing in Andrew and other people for help with that. Uh, Am I right in assuming that you, you spend a good amount of alone time developing your own hunch before you bring someone on?
3: Yes, of course. I try to figure it out on my own and then I test my thinking. Just to make sure that I'm perceiving, you know, recognition means to recognize. And recognize means to have a conscious idea of what something is and then to, to re see it. So, just the word recognition by itself, I think, is really interesting. And people say to me all the time, well, how do you know that it's not a Stradivari? And I say, well, it's a process of recognition. If your brother walked down the street, and you said, hey, there's my brother, I would then say, well, how do you know it's your brother? <laughs> so I don't know it's their brother, but they know it's their brother, and it's a process of recognition. I know that sounds silly, but um, a lot of people don't understand that we have to have an idea of what something might be before we can recognize it. So I, do, I try to go as far as I can, and then, and then I, I start testing my thinking. So
0: Claire, in your testing your thoughts on it, do you find yourself falling into any potholes as a, like, do you find your eye taking you somewhere just because maybe of what you've seen lately or something like that?
3: No, for me, I don't um, get into that kind of a trap. I try to remain just like super open to all the possibilities.
0: Huh. So you try to see the instruments innocently as what they are.
3: I guess so. Yeah, I look for some clues. You know, I just, last week I spent hours and hours and hours on this violin that had the little mittenwald nick that might have meant it was also Prague, you know, and um, I couldn't get it to work, you know, with anything. And so I, you know, pulled out my books even on Rome and even on England, and and I I couldn't get comfortable with it. And then all of a sudden I realized that, it had a different color of varnish under the chin of the scroll. And then it all came together as a Hornsteiner, the early Hornsteiner. I mean, the workmanship was just unbelievably great. And it was so distinctive, the The scroll was so distinctive. And it, it took me it took me forever to actually kind of pare it down to um, this Mittenwald maker, um, the first of the Matthias Hornsteiners, there were many.
2: So if I'm understanding correctly, the varnish had been replaced, but you found some of the original varnish.
3: That's correct under the chin of the scroll.
2: And so, I would guess that you were aging that violin at a different age because of you were looking at the condition of the varnish.
3: You know what? It, interestingly enough, it didn't change my concept of when it was made, which oh. was around 1790. Okay. So it did look. I mean, whoever revarnished it did it a long time ago. It didn't change my concept of the age of the instrument. Mm-hmm but it did really help me pin it down to um, a different maker than I had been landing on.
2: When you've done all this process, you've done the research, you've done the collaborative work. At what point do you know, okay, I'm comfortable making the call. I'm comfortable saying, this is this.
3: There are two ways or two types of... um, examination. One is for one's own inventory and one is for other people. And there are so many good experts in this country who are willing to step to the plate and put their name on an opinion. I don't do that. I don't do certificates of authenticity. So I'm not putting myself in the category of those brave souls who have studied far harder than I have, who put their names on certificates of authenticity. But for my own inventory, when I'm protecting the reputation of this company and making sure that I'm offering quality to my customers, I go to the ends of the world to make sure that what I am buying and what I'm offering for sale is uh, justifiably what I'm representing it as. And so it's a check and balance um, of what's my comfort level, that this instrument is is really a Bella Chippesee or a, a Charles Brugier or whatever it is that I've just recently acquired. And um, in a way, that's a simpler process, I think. That's really beautifully put. Thank you. This world of expertise is really complicated. Yeah. Because there are different kinds of experts in this world. and I, And I know that you're going to be talking to a number of them who who do put their names to the certificates. That's very different, you know?
2: Yeah, and we're going to thoroughly enjoy showing the range of how people come to their conclusions and- Why? Yeah, why and and what you're comfortable with and your own vision, your own, your own way of doing this is wonderful. So I'm,
3: I'm really glad to have it. Well, you know, I love mysteries. Yeah. Me too. I love Sherlock Holmes. (laughs) I love uh, any kind of a mystery story. And that's how I go about looking at instruments is to see if I can solve the mystery. And that's all I do. I'm just fascinated with trying to figure it out.
0: That's gold right there too. I love that. Um, Claire, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been great.
2: Thank you for all of your generous time this evening and troubleshooting with us and giving Uh, the luthiers out there, some really valuable information.
3: Well, I appreciate the opportunity and for including me in this segment. This has been really fun.
2: We are so happy to welcome back Christopher Rooning. Hello.
4: It's wonderful to be here. My third or fourth and maybe final time. You guys are (laughs) going to get tired of me pretty soon. Never.
2: We'll find another excuse.
1: Yeah.
2: (laughs) Walk us through your process, your personal process, when you are identifying an instrument. Uh, You mentioned a while back, starting to look at the back. What I'm wondering is where you tend to go, what your process tend to be, and what point do you let yourself look at the label?
4: Um, I don't look at the label sometimes until the very, very end. I, I really try not to, and I try to I try not to have any distractions. I'll close my door, or I I just try to get all my other work done so that when I sit down to look at my winds, I'm really focused on them. Yeah, and I start with the back, and I try to understand first the model, the age, get a general feel about the quality, and then turn it over, look at the top, and see if the top is confirming what I might have been thinking at first. And I like to listen to my gut feeling right away whatever that first name that comes or a city or period or style, I like to listen to that quite carefully. So I try try to go pretty rapidly at first just to see if I get a quick impact. Then I might even put it down and look at it the next day and see if I still have the same idea. Um, And I I might dismiss the instrument right away. I might just say, you know, this is nothing. And I put it away. But I I do want to look at it again and force myself to really look maybe a little bit more carefully. And by being careful, I mean, let's say really early on, I like to see if it's composite, whether the, you know, I like to see if the purfling matches, but much more than that, that can be misleading sometimes. I want to see if the channeling matches from top to back. And I like to take a side look at the ribs to see if the corner, if the back and the top are lined up with each other in the rib structure, or if it looks like it's been, it just never fit. And then get an idea of the age because it could be a replaced top made for the back, which would still fit perfectly and might even be a really close match with purpling and channeling and arching and all that. So I, I like to eliminate all of that. And I like to put the scroll off a little bit later because the scrolls are so often replaced. Um, I, li- I like to be pretty solid on the back and the top before I move move on to the scroll, so at at some point I'm going back and forth, going back and forth, and then if I have a pretty good idea what it is, then I want to look at details. Is the perfling? What's the perfling material? How are the linings put in? Uh, what's the material of the linings and the blocks? Um, have they been changed? Are they original? And you, you really have to at this point get into the Sherlock Holmes side of things. What's been changed? Quite recently, a colleague of mine showed me a violin, which was a Bergonzi that was somebody tried to turn into a del jesu. So you really had to look at those sound holes and say, "Ooh, how did they change those sound holes to make them look like a del jesu? And what would this have looked like before?
2: When you are looking at it one day and then setting it down to look again the next day, how often do you have a dream about that instrument?
4: Um, well, sometimes (laughs) I, I won't (laughs) lie, but I do think about the violins I've seen that day or recently, or in the last few weeks or months, um, from time to time, it helps me to have the pictures around, but I still will just think about the, the, an instrument and, and sometimes it, it can take months before it finally dawns on me what something is. I might Mm -hmm. look at it and know that I know the maker, but I can't put a finger on who that maker is. I do a lot of appraisals when I'm in New York, and one of our colleagues brought a violin to me, which I knew I knew the maker. It wasn't coming to me. I asked him if he would leave it. He left it. I didn't have enough room in the case to bring it home. And about two, three weeks later, I went back to New York and on my way out the door going to dinner, I just picked up the violin and said, Ah, it's English. It's something like a Daniel Parker, which can look very Italian. And it just didn't dawn on me before, but it did it did then. And I brought the violin home and I studied it and I realized, yes, it's a something, it's not the quality of a Daniel Parker. It's something close to it. It has to be either John Hare or his daughter Elizabeth Hare. And so I looked through my archive, I found this this kind of sound hole and so forth that I, you know, I finally narrowed it down to John Hare, circa 1700, who was making a long pattern Strad copy, just, you know, 10 years or five years after Stradivari himself was making.
1: Ah,
2: very cool. Well,
0: With that in mind, how often have you had, I mean, especially where you have a photographic memory... Um, maybe instruments that you have had in your possession before or that people have brought in and it dawns on you because of something new that you've learned, uh, what that thing might be now. Do you follow up with them and say, Hey, by the way? Oh
4: yeah. Yeah. I sure do. Yeah. I have a pile of pictures of unknowns Mm. and I keep them in certain places. Like if I think it's Genoa unknown, I have a little category in my Genoa folder for, for those. And yeah, I just I go through them periodically. One time we had just come back from an Entente meeting in Quebec where we had an exhibition of panormal violins, and I had a chance to study seven or eight of them, really quite up and pretty close. And I I came home and a couple days later one of my salesmen is selling this unknown violin as just an un, you know unknown English instrument to the client, the client wants me to come in and talk to him and uh, describe about, you know, tell him what I know about the violin. And as I'm telling him about the violin, I'm holding it in my hands. All of a sudden I realize, Ooh, this is a panormo. but I had already offered it to the guy <laughs> for, let's say a quarter of the value. And uh, I said, you know, this is quite embarrassing. Um, I think this might actually be a panormo. Can I, can I just borrow this for an hour? Can you come back? So he did. And I, I happened to have a panorama and I looked at the details. Sure enough, I was right. It was a panorama. I called him back and, and he, he bought it at the, at the low price. And I gave him a much higher appraisal. I, yeah, I hope he believes me that that was really, an honest, let's call it mistake in his favor.
0: In the field of expertise, what are the potholes that you would warn people against? Um, Maybe the things that would deter your eye, or you've already mentioned a lot of times scrolls are replaced um, more often than other parts. What are some other potholes to be aware of?
4: Wow, so many. Um, I guess one of the things I would say, look at and understand right away is, is that age on the instrument real or is it? Put there by the maker, that's an important thing to know, and that's pretty easy to once you've seen enough. I don't care how good a faker is, you can always see if it's been artificially aged or whether that's a natural wear pattern. So that's, um, I guess, that's not necessarily a pothole, but if you, if you don't understand the age of the object you're looking at, I think that that is a that's a, you know, very, that's a dangerous thing
0: at what point are you confident to say, yes, I'll sign a certificate or, you know, I'm not confident giving any attribution?
4: Um, I like to be 100% sure before I say yes. I want to convince myself and I don't want to have any doubts. Um, that doesn't mean I'm going to be 100% right. You know, I think the best expert is, you know, they used to, my, my mentors used to say the best expert is right 90% of the time. And, and if you're right 80% of the time, you're going to be making a lot of mistakes. And Robert Bine would look over at his folders on his wall with all the instruments he sold and, and said, look, if I'm the best expert in the world, I've made 10% of those are mistakes up there. That's, uh, and then you calculate that's uh, $38 million that I'm liable for. <laughs> Or whatever number I'm just kind of coming up with a n- number off the top of my head, but but you know these days we have dendrochronology, which helps me be much more accurate than my predecessors were. I won't take that for granted. Um, I I do that with every almost every good instrument. Um, I don't. It costs me two hundred and fifty bucks or whatever it is, but each time I learn something and teach myself something and you know i take the extra time to i want to see other examples of the maker i always hold it in my hands i never do a certificate from photographs only by the way some of our colleagues do Uh, i think that's a huge mistake Um, you have to remove all of the variables you can because you're still going to, you're still sort of guessing, uh, or you're not, it's an educated guess. You're still, you still weren't there. You didn't see the guy make the violin, but you, you need to build on your experience and utilize everything you can. Um, there's a great resource in the Brompton's, um, dictionary, which you and towards the back, you can look up any maker and see where it's photographed in, in, in the bibliography. So, uh, there's plenty of makers I don't have pictures of in my archive. I always like to check my own my, my library to to check those photographs. And and then when I see one that I, I've determined is wrong, I take a pencil and I write, write okay, this is a Carletti copy or this is for just I'll write fake or whatever I, I write. I, I make a note um, in the actual book. So when I come back to it later, I don't. I don't trip over the same same problem, mm-hmm. but I would also just add a little bit more about the archiving of the pictures and the cataloging. That's that is that's the ultimate. That's the ultimate. Uh, let's say graduate level of expertise when you can take all of the known maker instrument pictures of instruments all in the same format so that you can see them one by one all with titles and you write in the dendro right on the picture then you put them all in order and you figure out how a maker progressed from the beginning to the end because they all did they started off as a beginner and they hit their best period and then they went into some kind of decline or they evolved in different ways each one of them so if you if you put them in order, uh, you'll see, let's say, this maker, Decanet, who was self-taught, his first instrument, or let's say San, Santo Serafin, he was completely self-taught, his first instruments are very, very feeble. And then he very quickly became one of the most skilled and careful, precise makers that ever lived. And then, you know, then you see how he was influenced by the other makers, in that city in in a certain later part of his life and then then he just sort of disappears so you don't see anything any instruments in decline. So if you put them in all in order, you can understand a lot more about a maker than if you're just looking at them one and then a, a you know a few years later see another one by the maker In if you if you do that exercise, you can learn so much more than if you just just uh, doing it casually.
0: Yeah. Well, this has been really great, Chris. Thanks so much for sharing your knowledge with us. And uh, yeah, you definitely give us all a lot to aspire to.
4: Thanks. I look forward to seeing who who else in younger generations are, you know, hoeing the same field and and, uh, teaching themselves something about these old makers and what they did.
0: Well, we are here with Stefan Hirsch of Darton & Hirsch Fine Violins in Chicago, Illinois. And Stefan, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure, Brandon. Can you tell us a little bit about the structure of your business? You are in a trio.
5: Yes. Well, by design, I think... um... All three of us have a lot of experience in the violin business. That would be Michael Darnton, uh, my brother Julian Hirsch, and myself. And uh, we came together with a lot of experience uh, and enough experience to have each individually seen what it's like to get burned. And so the structure of our business has been to um, derive strength in unity and open-mindedness to one another. That's great. There's no literal leader I founded the business technically, uh, but we all participate equally in different ways.
0: So a very equal
5: partnership then? Very much so. Uh, Expertise is handled also in an egalitarian way like that. And in fact, we're, we're really committed to avoiding the echo chamber effect where one person starts hearing their ideas bouncing off their colleague and they get themselves convinced. So our way of handling expertise is that we each look independent of one another before we and, and come to some conclusions before we start throwing those ideas into the mix. Um, and, and I think that that yields a more objective assessment of instruments, and we miss fewer things that way as well.
2: Okay, so of the three of you an instrument comes into the shop or there's an instrument that you have received from auction, you are not talking to each other until you have all arrived at a conclusion.
5: That's correct. In fact, when Julian and I go to auctions together, which we do often, we make it a practice to each vet the entire auction independent of one another, coming to conclusions, and then we spend the evenings conferring.
2: So when it's just you... When you are alone with that instrument, tell us a little bit about your process at coming to your personal conclusion.
5: Well, so when I look at an instrument, I try to look at the back first. Uh, for me, I can get thrown off by certain little things uh, if, I, if I try to go too far before I just have a sense of the outline and how the thing was constructed. And one of the first things I try to figure out is whether it was made on an inside or outside mold, um, because that just tells a lot about nationality. Uh, I think a lot of your listeners will know that we're typically trying to First of all, lump things into national buckets by by maker style, and and then working our way inside of that further and further. Um, but this is only if you don't get an immediate ding-a-ling in your head that says it's a that. Which you know, sure. very often you pick up something that's a that, and and then you don't. Then you what you're looking for is anything that would contradict that, and anything that confirms that. Um, but but outside of that, then you're trying to work your way to. A, a region, a city, uh, and then you start to by process of elimination figure out who it could be.
2: So you are either trying to tease out the mystery piece by piece or you have an early gut response and you're trying to convince yourself perhaps away from that?
5: Yeah, discredit I would say that the, I, I would my early gut responses, and I think Julian's as well, um, pretty good batting average actually, but we don't always have them. But mm-hmm. when we have them, they, they work pretty well. But we, we do a lot of, you know, we'll have that early gut response and then we'll start sending texts back and forth. And to see kind of the test is, is you know, I'll send a text. wonder if he's going to have that response. And through that process we've learned where there are specific strengths. I mean, Michael, for instance, doesn't get out like Julian and I do and doesn't look at as many things, but he has a world of experience photographing things. He has a wonderfully artistic eye and he looks at the things from the maker's perspective, which Julian and I find extremely edifying because neither of us are makers. Um, mm. and, and so he has a different take. Um, any one of us is capable of finding ourselves you know, alone in left field with uh, no traffic. Um, but uh, we reach alignment Usually, uh, eventually, um, either recognizing oh the error of our ways or whatever. But it's great having three because if you start find two leaning hard, you have to bend, right? It's mm-hmm. a
2: nice holy trinity.
5: <laughs> a holy trinity in the violin yeah. business. Who knew? Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, it, do you have an example of a time where there was a different? perspective from the maker versus
5: you? Uh, I'm trying to think. Well, there's things we've learned over the years, like Michael pointed out in a Dutch violin many years ago, um, that, that not only was there a groove in the back, like we knew, but this particular violin had a kind of a slot worked out where the ribs were inset into the back and and that became something we've now learned as a feature of one individual Dutch maker maybe not all the time but it was it was just kind of a cool thing where we wouldn't have known to look for that he looked for it he showed us that and now we're changed
0: yeah mm-hmm. have you guys ever had any instances where you've come to an attribution But then Michael gets inside of the thing and the attribution changes. Yeah, we have. I'm sorry to say
5: (laughs) (laughs) Our, our rule of thumb in the business is that we don't sell anything as unless all three of us are willing to go along with it, because we recognize that our liability on anything we sell is basically joint and several if it even if it weren't true legally, it's, it's true in terms of reputation. We're going to have to back up anything we sell. So we feel that veto power rests with any one of us. And we have had instances where Julian and I went out, agreed, spent money on something, and, Mike, and came back and Michael said, it can't be. It's, it's, it's a this or a that. Kind of embarrassingly sometimes. And sometimes at pretty big loss. No. Uh, it just goes with the territory. Uh, I wouldn't trade my partners for anything. They've been great. Um, and uh, great in their attitude about all kinds of things. And we have a harmonious partnership, which is kind of an amazing thing in itself all these years in. And um, and I'll take being reeled back from possibly making a mistake every day over uh, loose cannons that make a lot of mistakes that have to be dealt with later. We, we're very conservative that way. We really don't want to sell things that we have to buy back. And as hard as we try, we still have, we have, still have done it. It has happened
0: so stefan what are some of the potholes that you find your eyes or just overall impressions of instruments falling into when you're trying to look at things um, perhaps it could be just based on a lot of the stuff that you've seen a lot of recently like maybe you've been studying a certain maker and then all of a sudden you start seeing those everywhere
5: that is a potential pothole uh, i think um that particular one, I'm, I seem, I think, I am a little, I am too much of a cynic to be as susceptible to that one as I could be. Here is a terrible one that you can get into, though. For instance, if you get used to the idea that early twentieth-century Neapolitan violins have a greenish cast, and then someone puts in front of you an American violin with a greenish cast that's kind of a little bit wobbly, looking like a Neapolitan violin, you can easily just go there. Mm-hmm. And in fact, some of the best fraudsters are really good at figuring out what they can get people to think things are and inserting those labels cleverly. And so I think that's a pretty glaring pothole. If, you, if you're traveling in the wake of someone who's clever like that and, and, and has a sort of a bent to deceive, you can wind up, um, you know, thinking you've got an X when you've really got a 0.5X or a nothing and or, mm-hmm. or a Robert Glear when you thought you had a Contino, um, and uh, how 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 many generations a an error like that will go is a question. If you if you bought that Robert Glear back in 1991 and thinking it was a Contino, and then sold it in 1992 for eighty five hundred dollars, which is probably what it would have sold for back then, and by now the owner thinks they've got a Forty-five or fifty or sixty or seventy thousand dollar Contino. Well, what are you going to tell them when they come back in? Yeah, actually, it's a Robert Glear. It's not even worth. It's barely worth what you paid for back then. (laughs) Um, So, so that's. I would say that's the 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 type of pothole that probably snares the most people.
2: I believe you mentioned at one time that dendrochronology can have its pitfalls as well.
5: Well, yeah. Uh, a lot has been made of dendrochronology, and it really is very, very interesting. And I think Peter Ratcliffe is doing fabulous work with dendrochronology. There are some flaws with the way it's applied to violins. The, the, the original concept for dendrochronology is bulletproof. Actually, it's it it basically says that you can read. Climatic change in the tree ring growth of softwood trees in certain forests. And that if you get um, a close enough match between the relationships of climatic events in a series of uh, softwood growth from a region, you can, and, and if you have enough reference point dates from different examples, you can start to fix in time those, those uh patterns, when, the, when the, those uh, climactic events occurred. And by that, you can see when the particular tree had to have been growing. Uh, uh, so it's very interesting. It's very useful. The problem with the, with the way it's applied to violins is that we don't have a lot of independent uh, confirmation. Almost all of the information that is in the master chronologies comes from the violin world. So Mm -hmm. I regard same tree matches as the most valuable information that we can get from dendrochronology. Um, I regard some of these sort of broader date ranges that we get into, you know, they, they're getting better. I think the master chronologies are getting better and better. Um, Again, you know, Radcliffe is, is uh, doing good work on this. Um, There have been instances in the past when uh, it was misunderstood and, um, the right level of uh, match, uh, what the, they call a T-value in scientific terms. Um, you know, it, People thought that if you had almost a T-value, you had almost a match. It doesn't work that way. Until you get to a certain T-value, it's binary. You don't have a match. You have something that's close. But close is literally no cigar. You don't have anything. Um, in, in dendrochronology, you've either hit an absolute rock-solid you know, super, super match, or you really don't have a match at all. And then so that's a misunderstood part of it, number one. And, and you know, when dendrochronology was first being applied on in violins in, uh, in the late 90s, um, there was a giant controversy that became a uh, cause celebre when uh, the the Del Gezo ex- exhibition that Peter Bidoff staged in 95... Uh, w- uh, was was subjected to dendrochronology, and this scientist in, in Germany, Peter Klein, did all this work on, on and came up with these great same tree matches. And then uh, uh, someone decided, well, let's check and see if the Messiah Stradivari is a match. Well, it, de- it wasn't a match, and Peter Klein didn't have a conclusive match. But the fact that it wasn't a match became some kind of a, a rallying cry for people who would dispute the Messiah Stradivari, which is in my opinion, above reproach. And, and so that's an example where people didn't understand the science. They got the wrong idea. Peter Klein himself discredited that result. He said that wasn't, that's not a result. But people went went crazy. And then there were years of nonsense sort of re-jiggering uh, uh, everything. I think it did dendrochronology and the violin world a disservice. And this is, this is the problem when people leap to conclusions. So I wish people would take dendrochronology for what it is, something it's, it's not an absolute, it's not a, a be-all and end-all. I think when you have very high T-value, same tree matches, then you've really got something. And everything else is something less than that and mostly a lot less than that. And if you don't have really, really high T-values, you know, in some range, I mean, I, I know it's supposed to be six is is considered a standard, but I think considering other aspects of this, I, I'm more comfortable when it starts to approach 10 and and when we see p values above 10 then i'm and then i start to feel like okay we've really got something mm-hmm. but um i urge anybody who's interested in dendrochronology as a as a method to help prove things read 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 for try to learn what you're really dealing with don't,
4: okay. don't
5: yeah it's not a thing that you can just do sketchily
4: okay
2: yeah.
0: okay our last episode uh episode 2 of this series was um a lot about the tools and i believe uh, you know tools are only good As part of the um, answer, you know, you can't rely on, for example, dendrochronology to be the answer for your question. You have to put a case file together. Um, And I mean, as it's evidenced, you know, the more information we have in the dendrochronology world, the more answers we will get because the possibility for matches, you know.
5: Along with questions. Um, (laughs) The the funny thing about people outside of sciences, they tend to regard science as some kind of absolute. And I right. agree with what you said a second ago. Science is just another another way of looking at things. It's a more uh, measured way of, of gathering information. It's good. But it's it's not an absolute, and science overturns science all the time. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's, it's uh, like we have the five senses. Science is adding one more sense.
5: That's an interesting way of putting it. Yeah, maybe so. Sure. Yeah.
0: I think another sense that we should add to it is our gut, <laughs> just the yeah. gut instinct that we have. Um, Stefan, uh, when you pick up an instrument, how often is that first initial reaction the actual right one?
5: Oh, I don't know. I, it's very hard to say. I look at so many instruments. I don't know how much my, my initial gut is even involved. When I have a strong instinct, uh, I think it's pretty. it's usually pretty good. Um, sometimes not, but mostly it is. Um, and the way I would, I would, uh, class this is, it's as if, you know, if you're meeting somebody for the first time, you know, they really look like they could be the son of so-and-so look at that. that it's kind of like a relationship. You see a relationship in, and I, I don't even know what I'm reacting to. Actually, it's, it's, there's just a certain set of physical features. And then if I start trying to break it down, I'll say, well, see the way that the, the, the corners are shorter you see that you know i was looking at a colleague's michelangelo bergonzi the other day and i and i saw this just extremely square pin so i just took a picture of just that pin and sent it to julian to see what he would say he would say that looks that can't be a bergonzi that's a, kind of an imitation it's too extreme i said no that's that really isn't bergonzi <laughs> he knew that, that square pen pin meant that but it's those kinds of things that that we know we've learned and then they ring the bell hard Mm-hmm. So, so, and, and I would say that the stronger the maker is, the more distinctive that is, um, you know, the look of a Del Gesu or the look of a Strad or the look of an Amati or the look, especially of a Guadagnini, is a very strong impression. And when you've seen them a bunch, then you just get this whiff off that. And that's what it's likely to be. When we get into the weeds with makers who are less interesting or more idiosyncratic or or less desired, if I'm really honest about it, you know, because there's some really wonderful Prague makers that don't command much value. And I've got to admit, even though I've been to Prague and tried to learn about them, it doesn't seem to stick. I hope that's not just a reflection on my commercial interest, but um, (laughs) it might be.
2: Well, on that note, when you get to the point where you're ready to make the call, this is an x tell us what that moment feels like tell us how you arrive at it tell us when you feel like when you feel comfortable making that call
5: uh well so it's not usually when it's like that it's not usually a long process i'm usually already there and i'm waiting for my from for julian to say ah. the same, michael say the same thing it's it's when, when i'm really confident that i'm then i believe oh that's a that um and but that's you know some small percentage of the things I look at. As I'd like to say to people, the biggest category of instrument maker that I encounter is I don't know.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where's that in the Hindley? <laughs> you know, it's, it's a really wide net. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this,
3: is,
0: this, is, this, is, this is, this is, this is, and
5: this
1: is the coda.
2: Guys, I want to apologize if this is a jarring transition. We had some technical difficulties, but I do want to sign off saying thank you to Stefan Hirsch for being a part of our interviews. And uh, we just had some mic stuff, so we didn't get to say goodbye formally to him. But um, we're closing out now. Back with Brandon. Hello.
0: Hey, Rosie.
2: With a three ID episodes that we just did without talking about baseball. <laughs> what, what what's your takeaway?
0: Oh, uh, I mean, I think you said it best at the beginning of the episode that it is a train of information. Um and as, you know, when we started into this project, it is overwhelming if you're new to identification and as Ben Hebert pointed out, there are just so many items, so many pieces of knowledge that you have to know. You have to know so many facts in this trade Um, and you have to learn each of them and then make them all work together. And I think the inspiring thing for me is that this truly is a lifelong endeavor. It's something that you're never going to get to the bottom of, no matter how hard you try.
2: Yeah. Yeah something that i am often reminded doing omo over and over again is that there are so many good minds in this community compiling their data in their little niche of what we do so as far as identification there are so many people involved in collecting that information in a good and thorough way so that we've got more to work with now we've got more to work with tomorrow the next generation gets to be better at this because of the work people are doing today. And that makes me so happy. I'm so thankful for these people and what they do.
0: It truly is a collective, isn't it?
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I I find it so humbling that you also have, you know, these five people who are willing to share their knowledge with us Yeah. and not be scared about it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> they're not they're not terribly proprietary about it um and i remember the first time i met claire givens it was at the vsa in 2014 and she was so incredibly kind to talk to me about um how to learn and that was one of the reasons i was excited to bring her on is because she just took like 5 minutes to chat with me after she'd given a presentation on a an amadi and I just said, Claire, how did you learn? How did you learn to see stuff the way you do? And she said that she used to take her sketchbook to museums and sketch stuff out, you know, which is very, yeah. Which is interesting because didn't Ben say the same thing?
2: He said the same thing. Yes. He said uh, drawing and writing. So the information enters your brain in a different way, even if the notes are rubbish. And on that note, that leads me into our next episode. So, I'm going to take what I have learned in all of this, and I've got a trip coming up. I'm going to go to Vienna. I'm leaving in nine days and uh, oh, going man. to go. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go to the Kunsthistorisches Museum. I think that's correct. And there's a collection to of, study
0: that one for a while. Yeah.
2: <laughs> there's a collection of instruments there at this museum. Uh, many of them are from Franz Geisenhoff, who was an excellent maker in his day. He came along about uh, about maybe like fifty to seventy five years after Stradivari. So if we're looking at a timeline, he's like, Uh, coming up generation or two after Strad and he's across the Swiss mountains up in Vienna. And it's when people are starting to recognize again that, oh, he, what he did was a big deal. So Geisenhoff has got a lot of Strad models that he's making, but he's doing excellent work. I get to see his um, transition from an early period, doing stuff that's typically Viennese to doing a style that is more, traditional Strad, even changing the varnish. So I'm very excited to spend a day there. I'm going to take notes, even if my notes are rubbish, and try to teach my brain something. <laughs>
0: Rosie, do you have an extra carry-on that I could possibly fit in?
2: I because do! this <laughs> Come
0: on! Like an incredible trip. And um, yeah, I can't wait to hear about it. I'm so excited for you.
2: Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. And I hope you guys come along for the journey out there. I want to thank everybody for being a part of Omo. thank you all for when you email and you contribute um, when you have questions. Uh, We always love to hear from you. I want to know what makes you guys excited and what you're nerdy for so that we can deliver the best stuff here at Omo. And thank you, Brandon, for helping making this series happen. It was really lovely and I learned a lot.
0: Thank you, Rosie. I learned a lot too. And I hope, uh, yeah, I hope everyone shares stuff that they learned with us because I love hearing what people take away from these conversations. It's so fascinating to me.
2: Absolutely. So
0: everybody keep working on your eyes. Keep building your eyes. Don't get overwhelmed by your library.
2: And use baseball references.
0: Use baseball references <laughs> and keep your banana shirts on at all times.
2: <laughs> Thanks, peaches.
1: Happy summer. Bye. Omo is an all-luthier podcast produced by Rosie Deloach, Chris Jacoby, and Jerry Lynn. The show is edited by Jason Peoples, music by Invoke Sound. If you enjoy our show, you can help us out by leaving an iTunes review or becoming a Patreon member at patreon.com slash omopod, where you can get your very own Omo swag. We'd love to hear from you, so reach out to us at mail at omopod.com or call the OMO phone at 240-686-5345. Thanks for listening.